Cascadia and the edge of the world, Euphomet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. Good evening, I'm Jim Perry, and you are listening to Night Drift, presented by Euphomet. You are not alone. Tonight, a conversation with Joshua Cutchin. If you go to his website, the title reads, Weird Words and Brass Beats, and that just may be a preview of the energy that's to come tonight. Josh writes books, sometimes with co-author Timothy Renner, with topics at the intersection of paranormal and folklore. Tonight, under this cold blanket of clouds, days away from Christmas, we get very, very weird. (laughs) Broadcasting tonight from the studio at Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about this season, sharing space with others and exchanging gifts, stories, enjoying meals, exciting the senses, blinking colored lights, red and green and gold, welcome us as we meet somewhere in the snowy town square of your mind for a feast of the strange. You see, our tradition is linked to our folklore, stories of festivities with elves, fairy folk, and woodland beasts describe a holiday like Christmas very much. But what can we learn from this lore? How does it inspire our family feasts today? Perhaps we've been accepting gifts from others than family and kindly strangers whose treasure comes at a great price. Some suggest, do not eat the food. And if our holidays are inspired by great lore, in which we'll explore tonight, what can we learn of the beasts that must be considered? If you're listening to this in West Seattle, you may know that there's quite the enchanted park there in your town. Jeremy Puma and Garrett Kelly of Liminal Earth took me up muddy trails to come to an outcropping of trees under which many fairy houses reside. It was an entire fairy village. You stand there and you get lost in the trinkets and little structures, an altar to fae. And no matter if these structures are made by children or adults having fun or paying tribute or maybe a coven, it doesn't quite matter. Because when you find yourself in that place, you can't help but become enchanted. And that's kind of what the holidays are like. It's a ritual of glowing light shared together. Despite continued attempts to uncover the truth, proof of something like this, something like Fay or Bigfoot, a phenomenon that has eluded researchers and cryptozoologists for decades. Witnesses regularly describe seeing and interacting with something like a large undiscovered hominid, and yet such sightings regularly produce evidence directly at odds with conventional scientific explanations. It seems impossible to reconcile these peculiarities. Among them, mystery lights, UFOs, unusual sounds, mind speed, cryptic stick signs, and anomalous footprints and trackways, with the notion of flesh and blood creatures evading detection in the modern frontier. Somewhere on the edge of it all. Somewhere within our hearts, or maybe even just our minds. As remarkable as this discovery of a man like primate or fairies would be what if they are something stranger still. 
the next the, the, the peripheral oddities of high strangeness are infused in our contemporary mythology. Tonight, we look at how the mysterious mess of the supernatural collides with reality, generating truly baffling encounters. What you just heard was a culmination of my own words and many used words to describe where the footprints where the footprints end, which is a great two-volume series right now by Joshua Cutchin and Timothy Renner. And tonight we have Joshua Cutchin. We'll also be taking your calls, 425-373-5527 or toll-free in Western Washington, 888-298-KKNW. That's on Night Drift, right after this. show on social media at Euphomet, E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T. With Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, Seattle. Now, here again is Jim. I'm back with you here tonight. And can I just level with you for a second? I need to slow down. I need to slow down. There's something about this show. There's a gravity to it. And I think it's because I've been waiting for a long time to speak with Josh. He's someone that other people for years now have told me got to speak to Cutchin. You got to talk to Cutchin. This goes back all the way to the original Euphemet series, which was probably 2014 or something. And so finally tonight on Night Drift, we're getting a chance to speak and I'm I'm ruining it all with a bunch of long introductions. And 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 I should just get right to it. I do have a brief bio I need to read just to set it up for you individuals that maybe, you know, haven't been told by hundreds of people for years 
that you need to speak to this man for various reasons. So Joshua has appeared on a wide variety of paranormal programs discussing his work, including Coast to Coast AM, Mysterious Universe, Banal of America, Expanded Perspectives, Radio Mysterioso, and The Graylian Report. He is the author of five books, 2015's A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch, 2016's The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of the supernatural sense, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas, 2018, Thieves in the Night, a brief history of supernatural child abductions, and 2020's Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness, and the Bigfoot Phenomenon, there's Volume 1 and 2 with Timothy Renner. And without further ado, Joshua, thank you so much for finally joining me after years of anticipation. It's been long awaited, but I, uh, I'm i really looking forward to it. Thanks so much for all the kind words. It, um, it means a lot. Yeah, well, no pressure tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> just trying to live up to that, yeah. Yeah, well, let's start with something fun and just very broad, my friend. And, uh, you know, the uninitiated just jump deep into the pool with us right now. I want to ask you, why are we not talking about Disney characters when talking about fairies tonight? Well, uh, there is a certain degree of utility in talking about them through that Disney character lens. Um, but for the most part, that's not what a lot of the older folklore points to. Um, so just to be clear, I, I generally speak about fairies uh from western and northern europe but little people can be found among every civilization from every inhabited continent they're really it's really mm -hmm. a constant of uh of folklore amongst all indigenous peoples but uh turning to sort of that <clears throat> that sort of uh, fairy lore that we're most familiar with that we employ that term with the most the the lore of ireland and the british isles um generally speaking prior to theosophy um there was very little attention paid to fairies in the sort of nature elemental sense that we think of them as right mm. so so today like it really we, we really don't know what the fairies were um some people say they might have been, might be demoted pagan gods that the church demoted and that's fine wow. and then within early christian churches you might find you know descriptions that they were the angels that were too good for hell and too bad for heaven that happened to fall to the earth after the war in heaven but really, wow. if you look to uh, to a lot of of the uh, the pre theosophic uh, discussions that were happening in Western Europe, uh, they would have really talked with them, talked about them being in close contact with the dead or playing some sort of role either alongside the dead or sometimes being literally the dead themselves. In addition to conflating with some of these minor pagan deities as well, so you can kind of set aside uh, those ideas of of being nature elementals. I mean, there might be something to that on some level, but Generally speaking, we're not talking about little tiny uh, feminine <laughs> pixies floating around <laughs> on wings. That's that's very much a Victorian uh, invention, especially the wing part. What drew you to this topic originally, then? That's a good question. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I I was always a monster kid, and I always had an interest <laughs> in Bigfoot. Um, I always I, I started to find the the fairy alien parallels to be really compelling. You know, sort of that mm. Jacques Vallée passport to Magonia line of thinking. Yeah. Um, but I don't know why something about um, something about the Fey folk really uh, became my my bread and butter and what I really like to focus on. Um, whatever it, whatever it happens to be, I mean, who knows? I have Scottish ancestry, so maybe you know maybe that's part of it. Um, right. But uh, for whatever reason, I I really found it to be one of the most rewarding 
areas of investigation, I think. Um, I think that a lot of the things that we talk about in the paranormal uh, can be closely paralleled in a lot of this older fairy folklore. Um, not to say that everything is fairies or that fairies are everything, but that, that <laughs> a lot of this, a lot of the ways that people used to describe things through this fae folk lens um, apply to everything from Bigfoot to aliens to, you know, Mothman and just everything in between. It, it really is. It's sort of your mind can spin out when you're looking at these connections to how we interpret paranormal in the modern world and, you know, how our ancestors really looked at these things through a different lens, but, but maybe made with the same glass, right? Can, like can, yeah, can, can you explain a little bit about the, the time you realize that there could be a connection between what you were seeing with, uh, you know, what, what we think we know about aliens and what we think we know about Faye? Well, you know, a lot of the parallels were drawn uh, by Jacques Vallée in the 1960s with Passport to Magonia when he sort of mm -hmm. presented a psychosocial angle on the UFO phenomena, looking yeah. at it through older folklore. Um, I don't think that Vallée really quite, you know, admire him though I do, I don't think he quite realized how rich uh, that those points of comparison really are. Um, you know, in the intervening years, I've come to understand that pretty much anything that you can find in alien abduction lore, especially um, I can find an analog for um, even if you have to turn your head and squint, I can find a pretty close analog <laughs> for in, in fairy folklore. And I'm, I'm talking about things like, you know, implants and alien hybrids. And just, it, 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 there's always some variation on, on, on the, uh, on the alien abduction tropes and fairy lore. I think wow. the, the, the moment when I realized that it was kind of all one big paranormal soup, which is, is kind of my MO, I, I really mm -hmm. try to approach this from a pan paranormal aspect, was when I was reading J. Robert Alley's Raincoat Sasquatch, um, which I purchased through a, long story short, it was like a birthday present or a Christmas present or whatever, and I was into Bigfoot. And I read that uh, one of the Alaskan tribes, and I forgive me, I can never remember if it's the Tlingit or the, or the, uh, Quackutal, but okay. one of the one of the tribes has a has an analog for Bigfoot called the Bequus. And it said that if you took food from the Bequus, if they offered you food and you ate it, then you would be stuck with the Bequus forever. And I said, mm. huh, that's uh that sounds a lot like fairy folklore. Mm. You know, somebody somebody should write a comparative book on that, and no one ever did. So that was actually the sort of the genesis for for a Trojan feast and uh yeah. looking at how, you know. Uh, beings and even in abduction lore give people substances for certain means and sort of unpacking that uh, idea of never being able to return home afterwards whether metaphorically or literally how that sort of manifests itself and since then I've come to view a lot of these things uh, through the same lens I don't know if it's all the same phenomena when we're dealing with ghosts and aliens and Bigfoot etc but it definitely uses the same mechanisms you know these, these Venn diagrams overlap if they're not you know an absolute circle yeah, and and what a circle that you can fall deep into its dark center of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's you know my my co-author with with whom I wrote uh, where the footprints end, um, Timothy Renner. He said oftentimes that like whenever you're trying to write about the paranormal, it's like you're trying to like figure out where to go on a spider web because there's just <laughs> you know you can't write about shamanism without writing about altered states of consciousness, and you can't write about altered states uh -huh. of consciousness without writing about near death experiences. But you also can't write about shamanism without writing about near death experiences. So you end up just sort of having to pick a place and start from that and hope that people can you know flip back and forth and cross reference. But yeah, it, it really does end up sort of being like this Ouroboros of of just the same tropes time and time and again everything informs everything else for this right. holistic yeah well listen i'm supposed to write a book 
And I can't get past that because each page is another rabbit hole. And you're trying to provide context to that? Give me a break. I think I'll stick to audio. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't blame you. I mean, I, I think that, uh, I think that, I mean, look, a lot of my books are written highly informed by podcasts. I mean, I, I, there's probably, there's too many good ones out there, but yeah, so true. you know, I would say I'm subscribed to about 25 and nowadays I have to pick and choose, but like, I'm yeah. always listening and like day after day, whenever I'm in the middle of writing a book, I'm going to find something on one of the shows that I'm listening to. That's going to be a thread to pull on, yeah. you know? So a, a thread that could be five pages from a book and I've got to try to convince, condense it down to like two sentences. So it doesn't <laughs> metastasize into this giant monstrosity. Right. Um, but yeah. Um, so, you know, you've mentioned that you've, you know, you've kind of mapped out the, the relationship uh, of food and, and high strangeness, really. And, and it also kind of describes the relationship to food taboos. And this is a little bit of a personal question, Josh, but has, has this introspection into things like that food taboos and our relationship to the exchange of food, has that affected your relationship to eating at all? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, I'm, I'm a big guy and I like to eat. So <laughs> now, I mean, it, it is, I would say less that than, than with my, uh, than with my, my second book, which was the brimstone deceit, which was looking at, uh, really sort of the role that different smells play in the paranormal. Yes. And that one, that one now, whenever I smell something, I'm like, am I being manipulated? Oh, <laughs> but you know, but, but honestly with, with the food angle, like, yeah, there is, I, I don't think we realize or we appreciate uh, how many things, how many gestures, how many interactions we have that sort of have an implied um, layer of subtext around them. And food is one of those things um, that carries with it a bunch of, you know, folklore around hospitality and a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of ideas about what you, you know, the ways that you used to uh, approach, you know, being gifted food or not and what that would symbolize. And, right. You know, so, yeah, I mean, th there is that that sort of plays in the background for sure. Well, you know, there's this idea, I think, that that I gathered from that, from, from your book is that, you know, uh, historically food could be tricks. Food could be traps in some of this lore. Do you remember, you know, a story in particular that 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 uh, was kind of alarming or, or shocking to you that you found that that kind of expressed that idea that they could be traps? Yeah, well, well, something that I thought was was really interesting, you know, in addition to the the bequest that I talked about. In case anyone isn't mm -hmm. familiar, there was a long-standing belief, again, especially in Ireland and the British Isles, that if you were to um, go to you know, if you were to stumble into a fairy fort that was looked like a palace full of fairies, fae folk one night, and you were to take some punch from them or to eat something with them, you'd be stuck with them. And, and you know, most most uh, folklorists think that this stems from the Persephone myth, which has a similar motif of her mm. being trapped in Hades from eating a cursed pomegranate. That doesn't really hold water when you're talking about, you know, this same myth in, in Oceania or in, you know, the new world, like hmm. that just the cultural transmission shouldn't have happened. So at the very least we're right. dealing with a, a Jungian cultural archetype here. Um, but uh, I really thought it was interesting, this idea of never being able to go home. And what I, what, one of the stories that I always found most interesting was a story of, uh, I believe it was in Denmark uh, legend from that area uh, where this knight was approached by the LMAs, some of these, female fairies who came out and gave him some wine and he was able to physically return home but uh he was basically driven mad by the taste of it and by remembering being with them that he just was completely inconsolable 
Um, so that definitely is, if you start looking at some of these stories, especially some of these uh, other myths and legends from different parts of the world, you start to see that the you can never return home again is sort of like also you know, a metaphor. Mm, um, yeah. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of alien abductees feel the same way um, that, you know, you do, you do cross sort of a Rubicon in your own life where you're not, you're not really, I don't want to say you're not part of a society anymore, but like you, you, you're, you're different. And, and uh, you know, even if people are kind to you, you're always going to feel a little bit different and be tapped into something that most other people aren't. And there's so many ways that people have described that, right? Um, m- more recently, potentially a psychonaut like Robert Anton Wilson would say, that's the feeling after, you know, chapel, you enter chapel perilous, you know, some would call it the dark night of the soul. Shaman would maybe call it the shattering, right? You know, there's all these different ways that we try to describe the emotionality behind this, but in your experience, and please like, feel free to speculate here, what do you think, uh, 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 you know, these myths like this or these stories that, listen, let's not call them myths because the people who experienced them could truly believe in what their experience was, just like folks that are alien experiencers, right? Um, mm-hmm. But th- this idea of, you know, y- you make a transaction and then you can never go home. What do you think that's trying to tell us as as human beings? Well, you know, I, I think that a mind made up is a mind that has calcified. Um, ah. So so if you, if you were to have asked me this when I wrote A Trojan Feast, it would be a completely different answer than the one I'm giving you now. And the oh. answer that I give you now, I hope will be completely different in like six months time. <laughs> Um, I'm definitely very much in in the throes of courting a lot of these phenomena as having to do with death and uh, by extension of that, you know, the reincarnative process. And I always found it really interesting that uh, that those who would pass through reincarnation in the uh, you know the Hellenic world, um, if you were to reincarnate, you would be offered. Um, you know, uh, lefe this this drink of forgetfulness before you reincarnated, so that you would forget your past lives. Mm. And in a lot of these myths, the people who didn't drink the milk of forgetfulness um, and were reincarnated with their old memories became seers and prophets. So mm. I think that there's something to that. I mean, the the amount of awakening that you see in people who have had near death experiences have you know. Um, had uh, some transformative entheogenic experiences. And, you know, I, I, I sort of go back and forth on how many people should be calling themselves shamans if they're not in indigenous populations. But having mm. said that, yeah. the number of people, the number of people who claim to have had shamanic awakenings, um, it really does seem to be all part of the same thing. And you add on top of that, uh, you know, you would get taken to fairyland and you'd be, you'd come back and you would have powers. And similarly, one of the most common things that, you know, a lot of people who were of the extraterrestrial hypothesis and ufology you don't like to talk about is the fact that a lot of alien abductees come back with psi powers and these profound synchronicities and even have to deal with poltergeists in their homes as well, which is most likely in a lot of cases, not from an exteriorized spirit, but some sort of latent psi that we all have. So I think that it really is about that sort of awakening. Um, And on that note, um, I really have come to the conclusion that, uh, I think there's a shaman quota that the uh, that the universe has to have that it forces upon us sometimes. <laughs> a shaman quota. I love it. Oh my gosh, there's so much to dig into. I'm so fascinated by this conversation and uh, and and your work, Joshua. And so we are here with Joshua Cutchen talking phase folklore and really the strangeness of it all. So come right back here with us on Night Drift right after this. Thank you.
drifting deeper into the night, Jim Perry is taking your calls at 425-373-5527 or toll-free in Western Washington, 888-298-KKNW-5569. You're listening to Night Drift with Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, Seattle. Now, here again is Jim. We're back here on Night Drift. If you like Night Drift and you want more of the program, you can find it on the Euphomet feed, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T. For more information, visit euphomet.com. And, you know, I wonder, do you have a paranormal experience that has changed your life? If so, share it with me. Jim at euphemet.com. Next week on the program, non-dual mystic Timothy Rothschild returns to Night Drift to look at the year ahead of us from a shamanic perspective as we close out the old and enter into the new. That's this next week, Sunday, 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern, here at Night Drift. And now we're back here with Joshua Cutchen. And Josh, I wonder what people are seeing now from fairy folk. Do you have any recent reports, and are they different one than what you found historically? Uh, well, yes and yes. I mean, so I've, you, you run across bits and pieces of, of things online that people have had of recent experiences. <clears throat> um, but I, I can say that as as recently as I believe 2014, um, one of my fairy folklore heroes, Simon Young, uh, compiled mm. what he called the, the the fairy census, which you can actually look up fairy census, and it should be the first or second or so Google reser- result. Um, mm. But these are accounts that were he collected up through the date of you know publication, so quite recently. Um, and it's interesting to see how you know some of them do conform to older narratives. Um, some of them look practically indistinguishable from you know what we would call aliens um but some of them also do conform to that disney um stereotype Mm. uh and i i think that that says a lot about the roles that we play in in the way that these phenomena interact with us um my uh my dear friend greg bishop has been talking for a while about the possibility of sort of a co-creative idea in regards to to ufo sightings and i yes. think that's, this can probably apply to a lot of different paranormal phenomena um oh my gosh, yeah. where where we uh you know you, you sort of you bring something to the dance as well so you know if anybody's familiar with lovecraft like typically in those lovecraft you know stories like you look upon the thing and you can't figure out what it is your mind literally can't comprehend it well this is sort of like a, a positive riff on that is that right. you know either you are projecting something that you're familiar with culturally or whatever or vice versa whatever you're looking at is tapping into your data bank of of you know cultural ideas and tropes that you have and you know it's 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 going through the wardrobe of your mind and saying oh it looks like they have a nice bigfoot suit i could wear <laughs> and then it puts <laughs> that on um i think that I, I think that there's something to that because you know if you look at the way that these stories have evolved um and this is a very valian thing but if you look at the way that these stories have evolved you know uh chariots in the sky have given way to um to uh you know to these ufos in the sky and you can you can sort of it seems like the phenomena um, recreates itself with every passing cultural fad. So you have these, you know, chariots that give way to 
you know, steampunk airships so that give way to uh, Art Deco flying saucers and then right. the black triangles of the 80s. And then nowadays we've got Tic Tacs everywhere, right? Yeah, um, right, right. And, it's, and, and what's interesting, this is something that Tim pointed out, is that uh, the Bigfoot phenomena, as opposed to going on a continuum of, you know, less advanced to more advanced being one step ahead of us, the Bigfoot phenomena almost seems to be going backwards. Because if you look at like mm. a lot of these older, older wild man archetypes, they were quite like civilized um yeah. quite intelligent creatures and beings like literally merlin was was a was sometimes a hairy shaggy man and he was very articulate and very wow. you know very magically operant and then as you go through the years you find about you know in the 1800s these there are these newspaper stories of things that by all you know appearances resemble bigfoot but they're carrying these vestiges of civilization right like mm. sometimes they'll have a hoe or they'll have an old musket that doesn't work or they'll have you know a shirt on as well <laughs> and then nowadays, and then nowadays, they've just become these primitive ape men, right? So it's almost like these phenomena are sort of passing each other, <laughs> going in different directions. Hmm. I, I mean, in what other ways uh, does Sasquatch have a role in this narrative that, that you discovered between these links? Well, I mean, so if, if you're going to go ahead and divorce fairies from that Disney conception... Um, you know, the biggest barrier to understanding Bigfoot is possibly a variant of the same phenomena that's behind the fairies is the fact that he's big, right? Because yeah. a 15 foot tall Bigfoot or 10 foot tall Bigfoot or even a seven foot tall Bigfoot doesn't really correspond to what we think of as a fairy. But time and again, in a lot of the older folklore, you'll find that fairies were inveterate size and shapeshifters um, mm. to the extent that, you know, there were. The, the the wad woes the wood woes was basically at once a pagan deity and also a wild man archetype and also a fairy and also sort of an, an odinic archetype of odin as well mm. so you know that's sort of not the appearance and the uh the appearance and the hairiness of of bigfoot is something that is actually a pretty easy hurdle to get over if you're looking at the older folklore then you add to that that a lot of the a lot of the, uh, especially the brownie variants that you'll find, like some so French goblins, uh, the Peckhamderlin in Germany, um, brownies in Scotland, these household spirits are often described as, you know, short, covered in hair with simian features. So, uh, mm. you know, a lot of cryptozoologists today will say these are juvenile Bigfoot or Littlefoot, but it really seems to fall upon that fairy continuum wow. as well. And then you just have these, these just really specific things that are just... Um, that, that really make you make you wonder the thing that i always like to cite is um and this might be a surprise to some people because it really is kind of a goofy idea but um a lot of cryptozoologists contend that uh bigfoot braids horses manes like he sneaks into uh he sneaks into stables at night and braids horses manes there's actually a report that i found <laughs> of, a, of a i know right actually a report i found of a russian researcher who claims that he actually watched a bigfoot do this like an almasti one of the one wow. of the russian bigfoots right and um but if you look at that, like that, those stories happen like in Devon in the eighteen mm. hundreds, and it was always blamed on on the on the on the pixies, you know, yeah, <laughs> of, right. of coming in and seeing your horse's hair uh, braided. Now, of course, you know, I'm enough of a realist to think that in a lot of these cases, it's just owners who didn't, you know, brush out their their horses' manes. But what's interesting <laughs> to me is that like a lot of the things that we ascribe to Bigfoot are just things that we uh, we just sort of like graft our folk belief onto whatever our boogeyman that we can actually believe in is right whatever is most palatable to, again to our culture right. um you know and then um, just just there's tons of little things like uh you know in the american south uh, a lot of you know country folk will call bigfoot a booger you know right. it's a booger and booger comes from boogeyman 
and boogeyman comes from bogey which was you know a, a, a nursery fairy you know that would used to sort of steal children hmm. so th there, there's almost always in the background these these uh chains of custody between the, the 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 habits and the descriptions and even some of the etymology behind some of these things that just runs through it all from top to bottom well the language of it all really helps paint the visuals for our memory and for how we hold these myths right and so as the changing guard of the you know sort of our our, our stance on on what to call these things how to classify them how to add context it really does seem like a conversation is happening and that these are reflections or, or sort of ripples that, that, that bring us to where we are now. And I wonder if, you know, you, you have experienced anything yourself that has placed you right within the myths that you are fascinated by. Um, yes, yes and no. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I've been joking lately that I'm, I'm as, uh, I'm like paranormal kryptonite sometimes I feel like, um, <laughs> but I, I have had, I have, you know, it's one of those things when you look back on, it, you're like, Oh, there actually are some odd things that have happened. Um, mm -hmm. pretty sure I saw the ghost of a Confederate boy, uh, at one point at a mm. civil war site. Um, mm -hmm. we can get into that if you want to. Um, I saw some really strange light phenomena at Waverly Hills sanitarium and had a door slam open in my face, which was mm. pretty confronting at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, recent the most recent thing that's happened uh is uh we had some raps in the house that was accompanied by a dream and uh it only went away after i employed the advice that was given to me in the dream so uh wow <laughs> yeah it was it was a weird thing man it was about a year ago um we had some we had some raps in the house and uh I heard it some, my wife heard it mostly. We confirmed uh, on the baby monitor that it was not one of our, one of our children who were doing it. Um, and, you know, we, we did all the, we did all the horror movie things. Right. So like we, we had, we had somebody come out and check for rodents and they said it wasn't rodents and all that stuff was <laughs> happening. Um, my, my wife, again, I heard it plenty, right. I heard it plenty, but my wife heard it the most. Um, and uh, to the extent that she actually heard it, happening rather violently um in the vicinity of our, our front door um mm. she thought somebody was like kicking trying to get the door in um wow. oh, and uh this happened for a, for a while um you know in hindsight this was around the time that her grandmother was in the hospital um which i think is really interesting if you look at this through that sort of poltergeist sigh um you know uh death visitation sort of thing um, right. she also found out that like one of the nights that she was up she was staying up listening to it uh five out of the six grandchildren were also up at that exact same time so might be something to that to that but i, I had a dream i had a dream and uh i was in my my folks place um at home my, my childhood home and there's i was upstairs and they have a kitchen upstairs and, and there's a spot above their sink uh, in their upstairs kitchen that we kind of have a similar spot in our kitchen and i was standing there with this uh really handsome like seven foot tall black dude mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh and i i remember being so excited in the dream i was like oh i, I tell me what what do we need to do what's going on like what do we need to do yeah. and he told me two things he told me first that uh, his name was shibalba which of course is you know as I, when i woke up i was like why would he tell me that his name is is the mayan underworld and i'm like oh that's right spirits don't don't share their names with you because that's how you get power over them right that's that's historically mm. traditionally folklorically the way that you so he, he didn't right. want to bind himself or anything but, but the other thing he said was that he wanted black licorice which you know i've never i never i i 
I barely like Twizzlers. I don't like black licorice, but uh, <laughs> he said that I need to take black licorice and put it in that spot above the sink. So I woke up the next morning and I was like, am I going to do this or not? And I thought to myself, you know, Josh, if you were writing about this in one of your books and the person didn't do it, you'd think they were an idiot. So you better <laughs> do it. So uh, I, got, I got black licorice and put it above the sink. And uh, it's happened like th th those wraps have happened like twice since then. Wow. It's, it's, it's wild. Just like almost overnight. It just yeah. completely went away. Yeah. Well, that's so fat. I mean, thank you for sharing that story. And oh, yeah. uh, I mean, one of the most fascinating parts of that is, is the end there where you considered, am I going to do this or not? Can you walk me through a little bit about how that consideration feels to you emotionally when you're dealing with this stuff? Well, you know, it's, it's a real rubber meets the road, uh, talk the talk, walk the walk kind of thing, right? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it's one thing to sit back here like I do and not have a lot of experiences and talk about Jungian archetypes and what this could mean and this couldn't mean, but it's mm -hmm. another thing to actually have that you know, viscerally happened to you. Um, you know, I kind of walk a tightrope in my life anyway. Um, I, I am a practicing Christian and, uh, my, my wife's family is very religious and we're, we're church going folk, but I have these, this interest in these things. And I kind of believe that, a, you know, a lot was left out of that Bible. Um, mm. <laughs> um, mm. and, and I, and I do swim in this sort of archetypal soup. So I, I feel like there's kind of always this tension in me. Um, yeah. and that was, that was a real moment of tension as well, because my wife's like, what are, what are you doing again? <laughs> Cause you know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I might, I might, uh, the guy know. told me, well, yeah, I you know, and I'm, yeah. And, and some people, I'm sure there's some people out there going to wag their fingers at me and say, I'm not a good Christian, but like, yeah. I won't, I won't perform the headless, right. But I'll stand there while you perform the headless, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a weirdo occulty Christian, I guess, but yeah. um, you know, it, it, it worked. And, and uh, I, I don't see my cosmology that I have in my life and my own personal faith is, is a pretty broad one. Um, and uh so yeah there, there there was a tension there and it was but it was one of those things where like my my wife was i mean that's how desperate my wife was is right is that she consented to me doing this <laughs> so because she was she was bugged by it a lot more than i was because i was like yeah it's sure. just a, you know um but yeah and and you know i'm not sure what it was i'm not sure if it was a, i'm not sure if it was a spirit that had visited me in that dream i'm not sure if there wasn't some sort of higher self slash psi phenomena going on with my wife and the involvement of of her grandmother's passing and all this um yeah i think that i think that's too coincidental to to, to write off as not playing a role yeah um but uh, uh yeah whatever it is it liked licorice so yeah <laughs> yeah you know as you as you continue this work and as you you know continue having experiences right how, what are some of the ways that you find to you know kind of healthily marry your interest in this and your research and your spiritual practice of religion you know how do you manage that tension that goes on there well the first thing is the same advice that i would give anybody who's involved in this stuff i mean get another hobby you know i mean this this <laughs> stuff this stuff no i i mean this wholeheartedly like this stuff will eat your lunch i've seen it i'm sure you've seen it too these people who just like they don't have anything else in their lives but you know the paranormal and stuff okay. and it just yeah i really do think that it's like a moth getting too close to a flame, you know? Mm, so mm -hmm. I think that everybody needs to have a, a plurality of, of interests and a plurality of passions and a plurality of things that they're, that they're competent at. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's why I enjoy being able to retreat to my music, but as, as far as like incorporating that into my, you know, lived experience, um, 
it's a tricky one. You know, I, I have this sort of philosophy that's kind of running through some of my books is that I like to focus on topics and things that make me uncomfortable. And by mm. uncomfortable, I mean like personally uncomfortable, or I also mean things that I can't reconcile with my, you know, paranormal viewpoints du jour. Mm. Um, so you like to so, go to those deep waters. Yeah, I mean, because like it's it's a, it's the old Terrence McKenna thing, right? If it's real, it can handle the pressure. So if you have an idea of what the paranormal <laughs> is and you're excluding an entire like branch of accounts, then then how strong is your is your theory really, right? So it's part of the reason I one of several reasons why I wrote uh, Thieves in the Night, which was my 2018 book, was because like I wanted to see like okay, well the you know the changeling phenomena in fairy folklore kind of looks like the alien hybrid stuff, but it's not a perfect match. So how do I reconcile that if I think that these two are the same phenomena? Mm. Um, my current project is actually a lot more personal, um, and it really speaks to exactly what you were getting at. Um, I've always shied away from and had a real aversion towards these stories of people who have alien walk-ins and who mm. have claimed to be reincarnated aliens and claim to have pre-birth memories of being aboard spaceships. Like those things make my, my toes curl in my shoes and not in the good way. Yeah. Um, and, right. uh, and I, I've kind of just excluded them. So I'm like, okay, well, not only can I, you know, how does this fit with my views of the paranormal, but also like, okay, Josh, if, if you think this is the way that the world works, like how do you reconcile this with your own personal faith? So it's, it kind of started just as me leaning into that, that weakness of mine, but it's turned into like actually a really personal project, um, trying to figure out a way to reconcile that. And I think I'm there, but my, my worldview and my faith looks really strange nowadays. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's, kind then, of, yeah. it's a continual pursuit in a way, isn't it? process well, yeah 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 exactly and and i think that like i mean where how is how does anything that's weak get strong it gets strong mm -hmm. by being challenged and by being put through adversity and I, I think that you know not to not to sound like i'm bragging or anything but i, I think that uh, i personally have, have strengthened in a lot of my own convictions because i've i've been addressing this 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 particular issue um that i'm researching now because again that alien abduction stories involving the dead and reincarnation and that stuff and trying to figure out a way to nestle that within a worldview that still looks vaguely Christian enough for me to be comfortable. Well, it's so fascinating too. I mean, that topic in general, I mean, even uh, removing the incredibly fascinating layer that you just presented there, uh, that, that, that extra layer on top of the alien abduction or experiencer phenomenon, when you get back to just those stories of those people having those experiences, feeling like they've been taken, feeling like they have an implant, maybe having some sort of physiological proof of, of having a foreign body. You know, I think a lot about what's accepted right now in current culture mm -hmm. in terms of pop culture or media consumption. And we'll talk about UAPs all day. We'll even talk about ghosts and share those stories with each other. I think the last frontier right now is the alien abduction phenomenon and, and the experience these individuals have that they feel is 100% authentic. Whether, mm. I don't know what that means, but from, from someone that has spent the last two years um, embedding themselves with certain support groups, it, I, I find their stories ones that challenge me so much in terms of what my spectrum of not just belief, but my my level of judgment in this stuff, right? Do, do you ever find yourself at that place where maybe you're prejudging or, or you're having to check yourself at the door and go like, wait, 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 what are the stories telling us 
What are the people telling us? And how can I add context to this? Man, there's a thousand different directions to take that. I mean, so the first thing that I always think is I find it really frustrating that we live in a culture that um, has rightly so emphasized how victims need to be the recipients of our um, our gratitude, our, our grace, and our um, our you know compassion. Unless it's something like alien abduction or seeing Bigfoot, and then you're crazy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what and what I keep on getting back to people is like, well you know, one of several things is going on here. A small fraction of people are lying. Okay. I think we generally overestimate that. I think there's a lot more misidentification and other things, mm-hmm. or the person has, is mentally ill or something really did happen to them. Mm-hmm. But even if they're, but if, if, if they're, if they're mentally ill or anything like that, the trauma is still real. Yeah. Like the trauma yeah. can be, the trauma can be identical to the trauma that they would have felt if it really happened. Quote exactly. Unquote, really happened. So like, so I, I get really frustrated with that. And, and that's sort of been a, it's almost sort of a Jeffrey Kripal making the cut sort of argument, phenomenologically speaking, is that like, you don't have to, you can, you can sit with, with someone's account and not necessarily have to make a judgment call on its, on its reality or not, or, or, you know, or their interpretation of what they saw or experienced being actually what happens. Um, so that's, that's one way to take it. The other, the other thing that I, I really get struck by is I feel like this current, discussion of uap and you know all the all the just the all the wonderful things that <laughs> we're, we're on am radio here <laughs> sir yeah i know right <laughs> <laughs> um all the things that ufology has been doing lately it's just reinforcing this technological fetish that i think is really depriving us more and more of the knowledge that we have a birthright that we're not just solely physical creatures mm. i mean you know i i I, and, and people are like, well, why is there government secrecy around something that would might be a, a for lack of a better term, a spiritual revelation? And I'm like, have you ever paid any attention to history? Like government authority structures have always sought to suppress, uh, you know, religious movements and all sorts of things. Like it's, it's the Dionysian mysteries. Right. I mean, this is, right. not, this is not, you know, this is not a new thing. And and which which upends your worldview more? The idea that the that reality looks like close encounters of the third kind or the idea that reality looks like something like the odyssey, like, which is, <laughs> which, which shapes your day-to-day life in a more profound way. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and I, I would feel the latter, you know, hands down every time. Um, so yeah. I think that there's some, there's a degree of obfuscation there too. And I, you know, that's something that the extraterrestrial hypothesis community has, has, has to wrestle with, you know, the fact that, you know, time and again, experiences report profound synchronicities they report poltergeist phenomena and they report seeing dead loved ones in their experiences right. even aboard spacecraft you know yeah so you can't just say little green scientists from zebel ganubi and, and be, be done with it you know that doesn't it doesn't work like that you, you have to engage <laughs> you have to engage these things or else you know your your house is built on sand well that's why i'm so excited about you, I mean, it sounds like the book you're working on right now where you're exploring these topics in greater detail because I feel like the work that, that you did along with Timothy Renner for the Sasquatch and, and the Fae uh, topics has been a phenomenal gift to researchers, uh, enthusiasts, and, and studious uh, intellectuals all. <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate your work there, my friend. And uh, where can people find your work at? Oh, Jesus, it's that time already. Um, JoshuaCutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. Uh, links to all my interview appearances are there, as well as links to all my books as well. Um, and just I'd like to thank you for having me on here. It's been an absolute blast. <laughs>
Can I tell you that it's been worth the wait since 2014 to do this? <laughs> well, that's good. That's exciting. Yeah, I, I hope that means we. A lot. Yeah, I hope we. You know, do it within the next. You know, uh, I don't know, not seven years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, three quarters of a decade. Yeah, yeah let's, let's do, do it. it. Yeah, let's, let's do it more again. frequently. Thank you so much, Joshua, and thank you for listening to Night Drift with Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, KKNW, 1150 AM Seattle. You can hear the show anytime on the Euphemet podcast feed, wherever you listen to them. Go to euphemet.com for more and join us next Sunday. And until then, keep looking up. Follow Night Drift with Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes.